0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, for you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered... The same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. This
1: is the word of the Lord. Amen. So we are continuing on, as I said, in a five-week series on 1 Thessalonians, which will take us to the end of our season of Ordinary Time. Uh, Ordinary Time is the time after Pentecost all the way until the season of Advent, which begins on December 2nd which is four weeks uh, before Christmas as we remember not only the Uh, waiting that the people of Israel had as they awaited their Messiah, but now we also enter into that very same waiting as we, the church, are waiting for not the first arrival of the Messiah, but the return of the Messiah. And I thought it would be fitting, even before we get to Advent, the purpose for this series is to hear how Paul tells the Thessalonians to patiently wait with joy in the midst of suffering as they wait for the return of the Lord Jesus. And so, Paul has written this epistle, and one interesting aspect of each chapter that we'll see is there's a very clear indication or, or application about how to patiently wait as we await the return of the Lord. And so in this reading, we're actually going to hear how there's something that happens in that first century that is a little micro picture of what will take place at the end of the age. But in review, I just want to examine what is the point of this passage. Why does Paul write this letter to the Thessalonians? I believe Paul's main aim or his main theme is this, that as those entrusted by God, the apostles preached with pure motives and they worked diligently and they loved compassionately. It is not as if Paul has come into the city of Thessalonica, preached the gospel a few hours of the week, and then returned to his private life. No, he gave himself to these Thessalonian Christians. And as this is the pattern of the apostles, we ourselves must imitate this pattern. As a church, we are getting ready for the ordination of two of our brothers in the faith to the office of an elder. And that new authority, that new responsibility is not one to be taken lightly. And we as a church, therefore, must understand both those of us who serve in an official ordained way and also those who serve in a unofficial, just every common saint way. Both of us, both sets of us, are one body and we have one great responsibility to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we see the apostles minister, so also must we minister. It is not as if as Christians, we can simply minister in any old fashion. We must minister according to the pattern that God gave his church in the apostles. So to that end, I want to look at four things. Why is it necessary that as a church we understand the godly marks of Christian ministry? It is because we ought to pray for our ministers and also hold them to account and encourage them in these things. It is not as if Paul has written a description of his approach or his way of life among them just to brag. No, he's writing to inspire them that they would emulate him and the Lord Jesus as we saw last week. So to that end, I want to look at four aspects of this passage. First is Paul's deep confidence in God and the purity with which he preaches. As we'll see in just a minute, he makes a reference to what has taken place in the city of Philippi, which is the city before going to Thessalonica, and how he preached in confidence, not in his own resolve, but in God's power. And this really is the central idea in the gospel. Then I want to look at how Paul describes his team of people, his team of workers, Paul, Silas, Timothy, as parents in the gospel, that they were like, as he calls himself, a loving mother or a loving father. And how this is not just some kind of uh, nice imagery, but rather it really is the substance of Paul and his team. The way that they approached considering who they were preaching to and who they were ministering to, they saw them as their own children for whom they were responsible. Then I want to look at how Paul commends the Thessalonians for imitating the faithfulness of the Judean churches. We saw this last week, how Paul commended them for receiving the word, and when they received the word, it was in much affliction, but they chose to receive the affliction with joy. It wasn't as, as we spent a lot of time last week seeing, it wasn't that they just received the word and affliction and joy. No, they received the word and it came with affliction and therefore they trusted in God and received the affliction with joy. And that is how they imitated the Lord Jesus and that is how they became examples to the other churches. That when those churches received persecution, they likewise would be able to choose joy. And then finally, the righteous pride in God's work that Paul makes a boast in the Thessalonian churches. If you remember 1 Corinthians 13, you may remember love does not boast. And yet at the same time, Paul is able to say, this is our boast. You are our joy and you are our crown. You are our reason for confidence in the Lord's coming. The reason that he knows this is he's confident that God will continue to work in the Thessalonian church even until the day of the Lord Jesus. So I want to remind us at the, at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the purpose for it was to encourage them and to continue encouraging them as serving God as they await the Lord Jesus Christ's return. Because of the powerful work in the Holy Spirit in the gospel, Paul urges them to continue living in a holy way. We saw a great summary of the gospel in the first chapter. Paul tells the Thessalonians that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And this idea that loving God is opposed to idolatry was very powerful because we saw that idolatry is covetousness. That before the gospel, we don't just have a problem of sins which we do which hurt us, but rather idolatry is an inability to see who God is. It's a blindness to the greatness of Jesus Christ. It's a blindness to the mercy that he exhibited on the cross. It's a, it's a spiritual blindness. It's an incapacity to be able to understand who our creator and our maker is. And so when the gospel came to the Thessalonians, Paul says that they were able to, by the Holy Spirit, turn from idols, turn from wanting things in the earth to wanting God himself. Our best gain in the gospel is not deliverance from hell. It is knowing our maker. If we were delivered from hell only to live for eternity with no ultimate source of joy, with no connection to God, it would be no deliverance at all. We get much more than escape from wrath in the gospel. We get Jesus Christ himself. If you are here in the Sunday school hour, the down down payment which we have been given, the deposit of our inheritance being the Holy Spirit, If you've ever paid a mortgage or you've ever bought a house, you know that you have to pay in the same currency the down payment as the rest of the payments, don't you? You have to pay in dollars, and then the rest of the time you'll be paying in dollars. Brothers and sisters, if we're given the down payment of the Holy Spirit, what is our inheritance other than God himself? That's what we're given in the gospel. Paul, therefore, continues to commend the Thessalonian saints for their reception of the apostles' preaching and ministry. The Thessalonians did not merely entertain Paul. No, they listened deeper and they heard God's word in Paul's words. Many of us remember the verse in Acts where it says, I believe it's chapter 17, that the Bereans, the people from Berea, were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, and they often maybe kind of accuse the Thessalonians of not receiving the word very cleanly or purely. And actually this letter, that, this epistle would say, that's kind of the wrong th- thing to take away from that verse. No, as Paul commends the Thessalonians, he says, you heard my words and you actually heard God's word in the midst of my words. Verse four, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain that doesn't just mean it wasn't fruitless. It means it wasn't done in vanity. Paul and Silas and Timothy, the group of apostles that he traveled with, did not come to Thessalonia because they wanted to be seen as great. In fact, he's about to reference the context in the very next verse. Verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict." If you don't remember or have never heard Acts 16, in Philippi, after preaching the gospel, Paul and Silas were dragged into the public square. I want you to imagine, if you know downtown Dayton, there's, a, there's many squares in downtown, but just imagine if you remember National City Bank Tower. I want you to picture this. Try to imagine what's going on. The entire city grabs Paul and Silas. They drag them into the public square. They are stripped of their clothes they are attacked by a mob and beaten with rods held by Roman officials before they're thrown into prison. So after they're beaten in the square, they're drugged down Main Street to the Montgomery County Jail. This is what took place for Paul and Silas in the city of Philippi. If you you think that Paul went to Thessalonica out of vanity to be seen as great, He actually was just leaving because they were forced out of the city. After they were put in jail, Paul and Silas then began to pray and sing hymns and psalms. I know I would be praying. I'm not sure that I would be singing. After they prayed and sang psalms, an earthquake shook the prison leading to the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And he was moved by the Holy Spirit, having heard the story of why are these men in jail, now an earthquake takes takes place. He probably had some sense of what was going on, and, and a great conviction of the Holy Spirit came upon him, and the words out of his mouth to Paul and Silas were, what must I do to be saved? He understood that the God who was with Paul and Silas had the power to shake the earth. It was no coincidence that Paul and Silas came to the jail and then an earthquake took place. Having then been denied a trial, Paul and Silas were quietly dismissed by the leaders of the city with no trial, with no public apology, with no reparations. It was was as if after being beaten in the public square and thrown into jail, instead of coming to court for a trial, you are just quietly dismissed and ushered out of the city. That is why they came to Thessalonica. They didn't come to be made much of. They came because they were not retreating, but rather they were dismissed. They were sent away. The people of Philippi did not want them present. They were rejected by the city of Philippi. Nevertheless, despite this extremely severe persecution, Paul and Silas were confident in God's power So that they declared the gospel to the Thessalonians. If you remember what we covered last week, after Acts 16 in Philippi, in Acts 17, the very same things begin to happen in Thessalonica. After Paul preaches in the synagogue for about three weeks, some of the Jews who were unbelieving, they took a group of Gentiles, as it says in the scripture, the rabble, they, they conspired together, they agitated a crowd, and caused another mob in the city, not in Philippi, but now in Thessalonica. And it is that context in which Paul was confident and bold to preach the gospel, Clearly, Paul is not having confidence in his ability to sustain himself in the midst of persecution. No, he's confident in the power of God in declaring the gospel. Verse 3, For our appeal, that is the appeal of commending the Lord Jesus, it does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. There is a time at which one of the prophets, I believe it is Isaiah, describes the word of God as being like a fire shut up in his bones. And he must preach the gospel. Likewise Paul says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. The word of God was so at work in Paul and he had been so set apart to the task of preaching the gospel to both Jews and Greeks that he had to keep preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit worked within him such that he was able to do this. And he was not preaching the gospel in order for men to be seen as great. He was not preaching the gospel for his own glory, nor was he preaching a gospel which flattered man's ego. He did not come to Thessalonica having been beaten, hit with sticks, thrown in jail for a night. He didn't come saying, Thessalonica, you're doing a pretty good job. You just need Jesus on the side. No, he preached a gospel which was deeply offensive to the fleshly man, thus the mobs. Trusting, however, that God would accomplish his work, they preach the gospel with pure motives, not seeking to be seen as great, but so that God would be seen as great. He wants to glorify God in the gospel. Though the gospel is announced to men, to man and woman, in the gospel, the glory of God is put forth so that all would see the glorious mercy of God's grace. In the gospel, we have a declaration that our sin was so great that it required the death of God's son, Jesus Christ. And that in his infinite mercy and grace, God has permitted those who see the Lord Jesus in his death and resurrection to put their faith upon him. That faith being a gift of his Holy Spirit. And only then are men and women able to have their eyes opened to who God is. And then they are able to glorify him. The gospel is not man-focused. It is man-directed, but it is focused on seeing who God is. Demonstrating the kind of mercy and love that the creator has for his creatures. In verse 5, Paul writes, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. In that day, writing to Christians or Jews alike, calling God to witness against your testimony, is calling down a curse should you be lying. Paul says we never came here in preaching for greed. It is one of my chief joys in my life that God has blessed me with a Secular vocation such that I can preach the gospel without charge because I see that as a pattern. Now, Paul does say to the Corinthians, it is right for those who work in the gospel to get their living from the gospel. There's nothing wrong with that. However, at the same time, Paul's pattern is a wonderful, beautiful pattern. He says in the very next verse, Nor did we seek glory from other people, whether from you or for others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul's saying, I could have made you pay. I could have made you support me, but rather I didn't want to put any stumbling before you. It is very clear to us that words of flattery are very impossible. Um, Saying very impossible is, I know it is incorrect speech. However, words of flattery are not congruous. They don't go with the gospel, for the gospel is the announcement of the condemnation of the sin of man. It is impossible to flatter your hearers, to make them feel good about themselves in their sin, and at the same time preach the gospel, because the gospel is the announcement of judgment and a need for rescue." Not only does God in the gospel show man his great need for Jesus Christ, but he also shows a great possibility of redemption in Jesus Christ. The gospel announces that all men have sinned in Adam, Adam being our first father and federal head, our representative. In some way, according to God, we participated in that sin. But we have not only participated in that sin, we ourselves, each one of us, have added to that sin with our own transgressions and idolatries. Not only have we added in a conceptual way, but we add to that sin daily. Therefore, God's judgment against sin is seen as so sure, so clear, so certain, that it required the death of his son to pay the penalty against that sin. It is impossible to flatter men and preach the gospel at the same time, because the gospel cuts the ego to the root. It says that in yourself you cannot please God because your heart is bent away from God. However, there is one who has paid your penalty. Therefore, only by faith in the son's death and resurrection can man escape this sentence of judgment and find new life in Christ. The gospel and flattery can never go together. And Paul, therefore, is reminding the Thessalonians, when I came to you, Thessalonians, I wasn't trying to encourage you in yourself, but rather I was trying to point you to the one who takes away your sin and penalty. In every way, at every time, Paul worked among the Thessalonian saints with extremely clear motives to honor God and to do good to his people by giving them what they truly need. You see, it is wrong for ministers of the gospel to preach a vision of Christianity that is about improving the condition of your life today. Because you do not need a better house or a better car or a better job, or a spouse. You do not need to have better quality food or a more physically fit frame. What you ultimately need is deliverance from your sin, which entangles you and, a, and, a, and to become a new creation in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> what you need more than anything is not just deliverance from your character flaws <coughs> or your patterns of life that are destructive, You ultimately need to see how Jesus Christ can set you free from those things. Please forgive me. My family's got a cold and uh, I haven't gotten it yet. I remember a few years ago, I was praying all night, uh, 2 Corinthians, I think it's 12, 9. Uh, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I was meditating on that all night, wanting to preach the next morning. And God humbled me because in the morning, I had completely lost my voice for five days. Some of you were here when that happened. But uh, by God's grace, uh, I haven't gotten that cold yet. Paul then reminds them of their compassionate and authentic love, showing how pastoral ministry is not just speaking, but is a way of life. It's extremely easy for us who are in the congregations of good preaching or when we see great preachers on the internet to presume that that is what godly ministry is, just speaking. No, Paul says to the Thessalonians, he reminds them that he was not just preaching to them. He was not just sharing God's word with them. He was indeed sharing his entire life. And this is when he begins to use this imagery of a pastoral parenting. His imagery here is like that of a father and a mother who give up their lives for their children. You who are parents or you who deeply observed your parents living know quite clearly what Paul is saying. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. What a wonderful presentation of authentic ministry. Paul and his team acted like loving parents, losing sleep for their children's needs. If you've ever been with a family who has a newborn, that is exactly what ministry is all about. As a true family, Paul knew his people and was known by them. It's not enough to attend a church occasionally. What really is important is when you begin to know God's people and you trust them enough for them to know you as well. This is what Paul is saying. We are not just sharing the word of God with you, but we are sharing ourselves. By preaching Christ, Paul taught the Thessalonians Christ's life for your life, but in sharing himself, he preached that same gospel again, not saying just Christ's life for your life, but he said now, my life for your life. That is what apostolic pastoral ministry is. It's not using the title pastor. It's not using the title apostle. It is giving up your life for the sake of God's people. This same pattern must mark godly ministers. Verse 9 For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This is a very strange verse if you don't know the context. Paul was a tent maker by trade during his time in the ministry. What he means by that, or what that phrase means is that he got canvas, he cut it to size, he sewed it, he built tent pegs, probably forging metal or buying them from a blacksmith. He built poles, which would then be able to hold up that canvas. And he created designs and traded those tents for money so that he could buy food, so that he could preach the gospel without asking anyone to pay. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Though, as he said earlier, we could have made demands as apostles, though he could have made a demand, Paul worked as a tent maker to not financially burden his hearers. He says the same thing to the uh, to the Corinthians in his letter to them in 1 Corinthians 9:18 he says what then is my reward that in my preaching i may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel This reminds us of the Lord Jesus who went around saying, the son of man has no place to lay his head. He was living as an itinerant minister for three and a half years, going throughout Israel, healing the sick, preaching to the poor, and encouraging those of Israel to accept him as the Messiah, to repent from their sins, and to follow after God. Paul exhibited this same Faith. Verse 11, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Just as a pastor is supposed to give direction to his children in life, teaching them how to walk, what to do in life, how to walk in purity, Paul also showed the Thessalonians that they must walk before God in loving kindness, in forgiveness, in holiness, in joy, not simply as those who have been forgiven and now can live in any way they choose, but rather they must walk after the God who calls them into his kingdom. The point is this, by using that phrase, God who calls you into his kingdom, he reminds his hearers of their final destiny, that the Christian life, again, is not just escape from hell, it is not just deliverance from sin, no, it is being set apart to know God, to experience and to have relationship with our creator. One that gives us fullness of life that restores us to our original purpose as his image bearers and creatures. And so he reminds his hearers of how they encouraged them to walk in holiness, not to obtain favor from God, but in the light of what will take place at the end of their lives as those who will live in God's kingdom. Therefore, if their ultimate destiny is living before God in holiness, ought not that holiness to break in towards break into today and now. As those who are called into God's kingdom, these Thessalonians must not walk haphazardly. They must not walk in any way they choose, but rather they ought to follow their spiritual father's direction. As Paul has taught us, so we should walk. Because the gospel had really transformed them Paul then always remembers his hearers with thanksgiving and prayer. We saw last week how in the introduction, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that he constantly is thanking God for them. And we ask the question, and really to ask the question is to answer it, isn't it? Were there any problems in the Thessalonian church? The answer is yes, of course there were problems in the Thessalonian church. Nevertheless, as an apostle, Paul thanks God for them because he knows that the Holy Spirit and God's word are still at work in the Thessalonians. It's very important for us to remember as those who are ministers or even just attenders or members of a church, that there are people around us who God is still working in. If you've ever become bitter with a friend, a fellow saint, someone who has wounded you or or, uh, touched your life in a way that has harmed it, you have to keep in mind that God is not finished with them yet. That is why Paul is able to say, thank you, God, for the Thessalonian church, even though the Thessalonian church had issues and had troubles. Paul, like a parent, is seeing his child in reality, calling forth the good teaching, admonishing against the bad and thanking God for what is there. Verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That is an astonishing claim. He has just told the Thessalonians that when they preached the gospel to them, They did not merely use human words, but that in their human words, God's words were present. And therefore, the Thessalonians, being given an ear to hear by the Holy Spirit, were able to hear God's words in the midst of Paul's words. By God's grace, the Thessalonians heard God's voice within their preaching, and therefore, they received the message with faith. Because they receive God's word, his word then gain entry in them and is continuing to bear more and more fruit. I love this notion that the Thessalonians not only heard God's word, but as God's word gained entry into their lives, it continued to work. It is like leaven, which gets put into a loaf of dough and it continues to work until it fills the whole lump. By God's promises of forgiveness and new life, the Thessalonians were able to bear under persecution. We too ought not to be easily dismissive of the word of God as it comes through Christian ministers. It is easy for us to hear God's word being preached by people who we know to be fallible sinners. And it is easy for us to dismiss the importance of what they say when they are saying God's words. Nevertheless, we ought to imitate the Thessalonians. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at the day of Meribah and Massa when they chose to grumble against God's word. This is the the calling to Christians. Jesus Christ warned his disciples saying, take care how you hear. The reason being is this, is that if we dismiss God's word as it comes to us through God's ministers, then we are dismissing God himself. That's what it would have been the case if the Thessalonians did not receive the gospel through Paul, but rather rejected him. When the city of Philippi threw Paul and Silas out, they were throwing out the Lord Jesus. That is exactly what the Thessalonians are told they didn't do. Just as the Thessalonians imitated the apostles and the Lord Jesus, as we saw last week, by choosing joy in the midst of suffering, so also they imitated the other churches. Here, Paul is about to commend the Thessalonians for how they imitated the Judean churches. And the word Judea is just a geographical region in which the Jews were living. That is the region in which Jesus spent a great amount of his time in uh, his earthly ministry. Paul says to the Thessalonians who live in Asia Minor, he says to them, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So what took place down in present-day Israel was also taking place in Asia Minor, which was Greek and Roman uh, territory. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, as the Judean churches did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. So always as to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Paul says that by opposing the gospel, the unbelieving Jews in Judea and the unbelieving Gentiles in the Greek and Roman regions are opponents of all mankind. This is diametrically opposed to the spirit of our age today. If you've ever seen a bumper sticker that says "coexist," you may have seen this. Uh, it is a embodiment. It is a representation of a doctrine. The doctrine which the "coexist" bumper sticker preaches is that all these symbols—the Quran, the Taoist symbol, the the star of David representing modern Judaism, the cross representing Christianity, the crescent and moon or crescent and star representing Islam. All of these religions are equivalent. Why can't we all just get along? And Paul says to the Thessalonians that those who oppress us by hindering us to, to not be able to spread the gospel, they're opposing of all mankind uh, I believe it is 1 John in his epistle that, where he says, We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The exclusive claim of Jesus Christ is totally opposed to the spirit of our age today. Our age today says, Why can't we all just get along? All faiths are somewhat equal. Don't push your religion upon me. I'll believe what I want, you can believe what you want. That is what our culture loves and celebrates. However, Paul says that by hindering the gospel, they oppose all mankind. Why is that? Because all mankind needs the gospel. There is only one name under heaven by which men can be saved— and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we understand that every proponent of a false religion or a vain philosophy, a philosophy which tells men that they can improve themselves, distracts others from seeing the light of Christ. Jesus himself in Matthew 12, 30 said this, this is a startling claim. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is saying that those who are not actively gathering are having a scattering effect in the earth. Therefore, as Christians, as those who have come to Jesus Christ to trust in him for our salvation, we must live lives that have a gathering effect, that point people to Jesus Christ. We must be, as, as we looked at two weeks ago in Psalm 2, we must be salt and light. We must be those who encourage others to turn towards the Lord. Paul's use of this phrase here, fill up the measure of their sins, is a direct quote or a direct reference to Jesus' warnings against the Pharisees. Now, this is a very obscure verse if you don't know the context, but I'll, I'll explain the context. In Matthew 23, Jesus had just called them, the children, had just called the Pharisees the children of those who murdered the prophets. Knowing that it was in their heart to murder him, Jesus tells the Pharisees in verse 32 of Matthew 23, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Itself, a direct quotation back to some of the earliest places in the Bible. When God sent Abraham away from the land of promise, he told Abraham, your descendants will be sojourners and they will only later return to the land of Canaan for they have not filled up the measure of their sins. The point is this, that God gave the people in the land of Cana 430 plus years in which they could repent so that they would not be judged. And then by God's people, God wiped out the uh, Canaanites, bringing a cleansing and a stopping of all of their sins. The exact same thing has taken place with the Jews who were unbelieving. This idea, the wrath which has come upon them at last, was a clear fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 23. At the end of that passage in Matthew 23, he says of the Pharisees that on you, verse 35, may come all the righteous blood shed on earth of the prophets. And then in verse 36, he says, truly, I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. Why do we need to know all of this first century history? It is this, that this is a picture of what happens to those who persist in hostile rejection of the gospel. That just as the wrath of God against the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and persecuted the prophets and killed the apostles, just as the wrath of God came against them in the Roman occupation, beginning around 60, extending all the way to 70 AD, that just as that wrath was come upon them at last, so also one day Jesus Christ will return to fully and finally defeat all of his enemies. We said earlier at the beginning of our time in Thessalonians that each chapter ends with a reinforcement of the need for a judge and one to deliver us from that which truly oppresses. And we saw also how in our world today, there are many things which are opposed to the Lord Jesus. In our world, in our country, years ago, it was the issue of chattel slavery in which men occupied, kidnapped, and enslaved their fellow man and held them in millions and millions of numbers. Likewise, other things throughout our country have been extremely grievous to the Lord Jesus and have constantly been putting, as it were, our finger in God's eye. Today, the issue of slavery is no longer at work. Today in our world, the issue is abortion. That over the last 40 years, 60 million children have been systematically murdered. And this is a great and grievous evil And when we as Christians who love God's image bearers, who love little babies, hear those kind of things, we can only recoil in horror. We can only say, God, how much longer will this go on? And we are tempted at times to say to ourselves, there is no justice in the earth. Yet as we sang this morning, just and true are all your judgments, O Lord most high. That's a direct quote from the book of Revelation. We can trust the Lord Jesus to put things right. That is why, at the end of this verse, Paul is able to put an exclamation point on this idea wrath has come upon them at last. He's not grievous in this verse. As terrible as that may sound, The Lord Jesus Christ is coming to be our judge. He will deliver all those who trust in him and he will judge all those who do not trust in him. Is there great injustice in the earth for you, Christian? Yes, there is. And I am commending the Lord Jesus Christ and patiently telling you, or rather telling you to wait with patience because you do not have to despair. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns upon his throne and will settle all accounts completely. This is what I believe Paul is wanting his hearers to understand. God will vindicate the suffering of his people. So, at this point, Paul then again commends the Thessalonians. Though the unbelieving Jews were being swept away in judgment, the work of God's grace among the Thessalonian church will cause them to hold fast and to remain. Finally here, Paul turns his eye toward, eventually, toward the eventually returning of himself to the Thessalonians. And therefore, he expresses confidence in God's work. He says in verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. When the Lord Jesus returns, Paul is confident that the Thessalonians will be seen as faithful fruit of an authentic ministry. Again, by calling them his joy, he teaches us what his motivation was. Paul was not merely wanting to be seen as a great preacher or a great apostle. No, he wants his joy to be their joy. That as these Thessalonians are being delivered from what enslaves them, their sin, and being given new life in Jesus Christ by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, that as these Thessalonians are transformed into new creations who can know God and live in God's world, walking in holiness, that that joy for them becomes his joy. This is the mark of godly ministry. Uh, First John likewise says, we have no greater joy than this to hear that our children are walking in the truth. Paul's joy is therefore rooted in their joy that as they come to experience the life of Christ, his own life is refreshed. So these are my two aims this morning. That as those who minister, we must seek to honor God in ministry. We must present the gospel not free of charge, but free of any vanity and free of any desire to be seen great ourselves. We must commend Jesus Christ. Uh, I can't remember which reformer, but it has become a treasured quote, a treasured memory of mine, that the gospel is beggars who have found bread telling other beggars where to find bread. That is what we have in the gospel. That is how we are to put forward the gospel. We must do that with authentic love for people. People can tell whether you authentically love them or whether you think they are a project or another notch to put on your belt. You can evangelize in a way that your love can be truly known for them we must understand that it is not we who work, but God's word which performs the work. And not only for ministers, indeed for all the church, seeing the fruit which attends godly ministry, we as those who are receivers or recipients of that ministry must be all the more eager to diligently obey our leaders as they charge us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It is not enough that we say we identify with this church or we attend that church or we believe in these doctrines. No, we must live lives that are in step with those doctrines that really truly receive the words of Christian ministers as God's words, not just their words. Please join with me as we close in prayer. Father, we thank you That through the Apostle Paul, through all of the Apostles, you sent forth your gospel into the world. And Lord, not only did you commission them and anoint them with power, but you sent your Holy Spirit, which did not just fall upon the Apostles on the day of Pentecost, but came upon all of your church. We pray, Lord, that you would send your Spirit again. That he would give us zeal and energy to not only preach with pure motives, but that we would also live in step with the gospel, that we would walk in purity and newness of life. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust you, that you will make all things right in the end, and that there is no injustice in the final day of the Lord. We thank you that you are empowering us to be your people. We pray that as we leave this place today, you would encourage us to be loving to our neighbors and that we would have your words uh, on our lips, that we might be able to commend Jesus Christ to all of those around us. It is for his glory. It is for his kingdom. It's for his honor that we ask these things. Amen.